Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Number 174, The Sermon of the Mount, Beatitudes, Part 5, Encounter with the Magdalene. It is a glorious morning, and the air is clearer than usual. Distance seems to be shortened and remote things seems to be seen through a magnifying lens so clear and neat are the least details the crowds are getting ready to listen to the master day by day the country is becoming more beautiful in its luxurious dress at the height of the springtime season which in palestine i think is at the end of march and beginning of april because later it has the look typical of summer summertime with ripe crops and thick fully developed foliage the whole country is now in bloom. From the height of the mountain, which is adorned with its own flowers, even in spots which would appear least suitable for blossom growth, one can see the flexuous corn undulating down in the plain, blown by the breeze, making it look like sea-green waves, with a pale golden hue at the top of the ears, now seeding in their bristly arms. The fruit trees, completely covered with petals, stand straight above the crops undulating in the light breeze and look like as many huge powder puffs or balls of white, pale pink, dark pink, bright red gauze. The olive trees, by contrast, in their dress of penitent ascetics, seem to be praying and their prayers are already changing into a tentative snowfall of tiny white flowers. The top of Mount Hermon is like pink alabaster and is kissed by the sun. Two diamond threads they look like threads from here, run down from the alabaster top, twinkling in an unbelievable fashion in the sun, and disappear into the green woods. They appear once again down in the valley, where they form watercourses which flow towards Lake Merrim, which cannot be seen from here. They then flow out with the beautiful waters of the Jordan, and later drop into the late, light sapphire sea of Galilee, which twinkles like chips of precious stones set and lit up by the sun. The sails moving on the lake, calm and splendid in its frame of gardens and wonderful countryside, seem driven by small light clouds sailing in the sea of the sky. Nature really seems to be smiling in this early hour of a spring day, and the crowds throng incessantly. They come up from all directions, old, healthy, sick, children and young couples who wish to start their married life with the blessing of God's word. There are beggars and wealthy people who call the apostles and give them offerings for those who are poor, 
and they are so anxious to find a concealed place in which to do it that they seem to be going to confession. Thomas has taken one of the traveling bags and calmly pours all the money into it as if it were chicken feed, and then takes it to the rock where Jesus is speaking, and he laughs happily, saying, Rejoice, Master, you have enough for everybody today. Jesus smiles and says, And we shall start at once, so that those who are sad may be happy immediately. You and your companions will select the poor and sick people and bring them here. That takes a comparatively short time, although they have to listen to the cases of many people, and it would have taken much longer without the practical help of Thomas, who, standing on a stone to be seen by everybody, shouts in his powerful voice, All those suffering from physical trouble, go to my right-hand side, over there, in that shade. The Iscariot follows his example, as he, too, is gifted with an exceptionally powerful and beautiful voice, and he shouts, And all those who think they are entitled to alms should come here near me, and make sure you are not telling lies because the eyes of the master can read your hearts. The crowds start moving about to form three groups, those who are sick, those who are poor, and those who are anxious only to hear Jesus' teaching. But two people, and then three of the last group, seem to be in need of something which is neither health nor money, but is more necessary than both, a woman and two men. They look at the apostles, but dare not speak. A severe-looking Simon Zealot passes by. Also Peter passes by. He is busy speaking to a dozen little children, to whom he promises some olives if they keep quiet until the end of the sermon, and a thrashing if they disturb while the master is speaking. The elderly grave Bartholomew passes by. Matthew and Philip pass, carrying a cripple who would have to struggle too much to open his way through the crowd. Also, the cousins of the Lord pass by, helping an almost blind beggar and a very old poor woman. I wonder how old she is, who weeps, telling James all her troubles. James of Zebedee passes by, holding in his arms a girl who is certainly ill and whom he has taken from her mother to ensure that she does not get hurt by the crowds, while the panting mother follows him. The last to pass by are Andrew and John, whom I would call the indivisible ones, because while John, in his serene simplicity of a holy child, is willing to go with his companions, Andrew, on account of his reservedness, prefers going with his old fishing companion and fellow disciple of the Baptist. They had stayed at the junction of the two main paths to show people to their places, but there being no more pilgrims on the stony path of the mountain, the two have come together to go to the master with the last offerings received. Jesus is already bending over sick people, and the hosannas of the crowd punctuate each miracle. The woman, who appears to be completely distressed, dares to pull John's tunic while he is speaking to Andrew, and she smiles. He bends and asks her, "'What do you want, woman?' "'I would like to speak to the master.' Are you not well? You are not poor. I am well, and I am not poor, but I need him, because there are evils without any fever, and there is misery without poverty, and mine, mine, and she weeps. Listen, Andrew, this woman is sick in heart and would like to speak to the master. What shall we do? Andrew looks at the woman and says, It is certainly something which is painful to tell. The woman nods assent. Andrew goes on. Do not weep. John, try and take her behind our shed. I will take the master there. And John, smiling, begs people to let him pass while Andrew goes in the opposite direction towards Jesus. 
but they are noticed by two distressed men, and one of them stops John and the other Andrew, and shortly afterwards they are both with John and the woman behind the shed of branches which is part of the tent. Andrew reaches Jesus when the latter is curing the cripple who raises his crutches like two trophies, as brisk as a skilled dancer, shouting his blessing. Andrew whispers, Master, behind our shed there are three people weeping, but it is their hearts that ache and their grief cannot be made known. All right, I still have this girl and this woman, then I will come. Go and tell them to have faith. Andrew goes away while Jesus is bending over the little girl, who is being held once again by her mother. What is your name? Jesus asks her. Mary. And what is my name? Jesus, replies the child. And who am I? The Messiah of the Lord, who has come to bring good to bodies and souls. Who told you? My mother and father, who hope in you for my life. Live and be good. The child, whose spine, I think, was affected by a disease, because although she is about seven years old, and perhaps older, she only moved her hands, and was all enveloped in thick, stiff bandages, from her armpits down to her hips. They can be seen because her mother has lifted her dress to show them, remains as she was for a few minutes, then begins to slide down from her mother's lap onto the ground, and runs towards Jesus, who is curing the woman whose case I do not understand. All the sick people have been satisfied, and they are the ones who shout most in the crowd, applauding, The Son of David, glory to God and ours. Jesus goes towards the shed. Judas of Carius shouts, Master, what about these? Jesus turns round and says, Let them wait where they are. They will be comforted too. And he walks fast to the back of the shed, where the three people in anguish are with Andrew and John. The woman first, come with me into these hedges, speak without any fear. My lord, my husband wants to leave me for a prostitute. I have five children, and the last one is two years old. Great is my grief, and I am worried about my children. I do not know whether he will take them or leave them to me. He will certainly want the boys at least, at least the oldest one. And I, who bore him, will no longer have the joy of seeing him. And what will they think of their father and of me? They must think evil of one of us, and I would not like them to judge their father. Do not weep. I am the master of life and death. Your husband will not marry that woman. Go in peace and continue to be good. But you will not kill him. Oh, Lord, I love him. Jesus smiles. I will not kill anyone, but there is someone who will do his work. You must know that the demon is not greater than God. When you go back to your town, you will find out that someone killed that evil creature and in such a way that your husband will realize what he was doing and will love you again with revived love. The woman kisses the hand that Jesus has laid on her head and goes away. One of the men comes. I have a daughter, Lord. Unfortunately, she went to Tiberias with some girlfriends and it was as if she had taken some poison. When she came back to me, she was like a mad woman. She wants to go away with a Greek man. And then, why was she born? Her mother is heartbroken and perhaps will die of grief. I, only your words, which I heard last winter, keep me from killing her. But I tell you, my heart has already cursed her. No, God, who is a father, only curses an accomplished and obstinate sin. 
What do you want from me? That you get her to mend her ways. I do not know her, and she will certainly not come to me. But you can change her heart also from far away. Do you know who sent me to you? Johanna of Chusa. She was leaving for Jerusalem when I went to her mansion to ask her whether she knew that wretched Greek. I was afraid she might not know him because he, she is so good, although she lives at Tiberias. But since Chusa has contacts with the Gentiles, she does not know him. But she said to me, Go to Jesus. He called my soul back from very far away, and he cured me by that call of my phthisis. He will cure also your daughter's heart. I will pray, and you must have faith. I have faith. You can see it. Have mercy on me, Master. Your daughter this evening will weep on her mother's knees, asking to be forgiven. You must be as good as her mother and forgive her. The past is dead. Yes, Master, as you wish, and may you be blessed. He turns round to go away, but retraces his steps. Forgive me, Master, but I am so afraid. Lust is such a demon. Give me a thread of your tunic. I will put it in my daughter's pillow. The demon will not tempt her while she is asleep. Jesus smiles and shakes his head, but satisfies the man, saying, That your mind may be quieter, but you must believe that when God says, I want it, the demon goes away without any further need. So keep this as a souvenir of mine. And he gives him a small tuft from his fringe. The third man comes. Master, my father died. We thought he had some money, but we did not find any. That would not matter, as my brothers and I are not short of bread. But I lived with my father, and as I am the eldest, the other two brothers are now accusing me of stealing the money, and they want to sue me for theft. You can see my heart. I did not see one single coin. My father kept his money in a coffer in a metal case. When he died, we opened the coffer, but the case was no longer there. They say, last night while we were sleeping, you took it. It is not true. Help me to restore peace and esteem among us. Jesus stares at him and smiles. Why are you smiling, Master? Because your father is the guilty one, the guilt of a child who hides his toy lest someone should take it. But he was not a miser. Believe me, he was charitable. I know, but he was very old. It is the disease of old people. He wanted to preserve things for you, and out of too much love he caused you to fall out with one another. But the case is buried at the foot of the cellar steps. I am telling you so that you may be aware that I know. While I am speaking to you, by poor chance, your younger brother, by striking the ground angrily, caused it to vibrate, and so they discovered it, and they are now embarrassed and sorry for blaming you. Go back home with a quiet mind and be good to them. Do not reproach them for their lack of esteem. No, my lord, I will not. But I am not going home. I am staying here to hear you. I will go tomorrow. And if they take that money? You say that we must not be greedy. I do not want to be so. It is enough for me if there is peace amongst us. On the other hand, I did not know how much money there was in the case, and thus I will not suffer for any information contrary to the truth. And I consider that that money might, not, might have been lost. I will live now as I lived before, should they deny it to me. It is enough if they do not call me a thief. You are well advanced on the way of God. Proceed, and peace be with you.
and also that man goes away happily. Jesus goes back to the crowds towards the poor people and gives them alms according to his own judgment. Everybody is now happy and Jesus can speak. Peace be with you. I explain the ways of the Lord to you that you may follow them. Could you follow the path that goes down on the right-hand side and at the same time follow the one on the left-hand side? You could not, because if you take one, you must leave the other. Even if the two paths were close together, you could not walk any length with one foot in one and one in the other. You would end up by being tired and making a mistake, even if there was a wager. But between the path of God and Satan's, there is a great distance, which becomes greater and greater, just like the two paths that come out up here. But as they run down the valley, they become farther and farther from each other, as one goes towards Capernaum and the other towards Ptolemy. Such is life. It bestrides past and future, good and evil. Man is in the center with his willpower and free will. At the ends, on one side, there is God and his heaven. On the other side, Satan and his hell. Man can choose. Nobody forces him. Do not say to me, Satan tempts us, as an excuse for descending towards the low path. Also, God tempts with his love, which is very strong, with his words, which are most holy, with his promises, which are most alluring. Why, then, should you allow yourselves to be tempted by only one of the two, by the most undeserving one to be listened to? Are God's words, promises, love, not sufficient to counteract Satan's poison? Consider that that is not to your favor. When a man is physically very healthy, he is not immune from contagion, but overcomes it quite easily. Whereas if a man is already ill and consequently weak, he will almost certainly die in the event of catching a new infection. And if he survives, he is more seriously ill than previously, because his blood lacks the strength to kill the contagious germs completely. The same applies to the superior part. If a man is morally and spiritually healthy and strong, you may be sure that he is not free from temptations, but evil does not strike roots in him. When I hear anyone say to me, I approached this man and that one, I read this book and that one, I endeavored to persuade this person and that one to do good. But in actual fact, the evil which was in their minds and in their hearts, the evil which was in the book, entered my heart. I conclude, which proves that you had already created with yourself, within yourself a suitable ground for penetration, which proves that you are a weakling lacking in moral and spiritual strength, because we must derive some good also from our enemies. By watching their errors we must learn not to fall into the same. An intelligent man does not become the laughingstock of the first doctrine he hears. A man saturated with a doctrine cannot make room in his mind for any other. This explains the difficulties met when one endeavors to convince those who are persuaded of other doctrines to follow the true doctrine. But if you admit that you change your mind like a weathercock, I can see that you are thoroughly empty, that your spiritual stronghold is full of breaches, that the dam of your mind is leaking in hundreds of places, through which good water runs out and foul water runs in, and you are so stupid and listless that you are not even aware of it and you do not see it. You are a wretch. Of the two paths, therefore, choose the good one and proceed on it, resisting the allurements of senses, of the world, 
of science, of the demon. Leave half-faiths, compromises, pacts with two people, one opposed to the other, to the men of the world. They too should avoid them if they are honest. At least you, men of God, must shun them. You cannot have them either with God or with mammon. You must not have them with yourselves either, because they would be of no value. If your actions are a mixture of good and evil, they are of no value whatsoever. The entirely good ones would be cancelled out by the bad ones. The evil ones would lead you straight into the enemy's arms. Therefore, do not indulge in them. Be loyal in your service. No one can serve two masters with two different minds. He will either love one and hate the other, or vice versa. You cannot be both of God and of mammon. The spirit of God cannot be conciliated with the spirit of the world. The former ascends, the latter descends. The former sanctifies, the latter corrupts. And if you are corrupt, how can you act with purity? Senses light up in corrupt people, and other lusts follow senses. You already know how Eve was corrupted and how Adam became corrupt through her. Satan kissed the woman's eyes and bewitched them, so that every aspect so far pure became impure to her and roused strange curiosities. Then Satan kissed her ears and opened them to the words of a new science, his own. Also Eve's mind wanted to know what was not necessary. Then Satan showed her eyes and mind, now awake to evil, what previously they had not seen or understood, and everything in Eve became sharp and corrupt. And the woman went to the man, revealed her secret, and persuaded Adam to taste of the new fruit, so beautiful to the eye and so strictly forbidden so far. And she kissed him and looked at him with mouth and eyes already fouled by Satan's gloomy disorder. And corruption penetrated Adam, who saw, and through his eyes he craved for what was forbidden, and he bit it with his helpmate, and fell from such height into mud. A corrupt person will draw another person to corruption, unless the latter is a saint in the true sense of the word. Watch your eyes, men, both the eyes of your bodies and the eyes of your minds. If they are corrupt, they can but corrupt all the rest. The eye is the light of the body. Your thought is the light of your heart. But if your eye is not pure, because since the organs are subject to thought, a corrupt thought will corrupt also senses. Everything in you will become obscure, and a seducing haze will create impure phantasms in you. Everything is pure in him who has a pure thought, which causes a pure look, and the light of God descends as a master where there is no obstruction of senses. But if out of ill will you have accustomed your eyes to disorderly visions, everything will become darkness in you. In vain you will look at the most holy things. In darkness they will be nothing but blackness, and blackness will be the deeds accomplished by you. Therefore, O children of God, defend yourselves against yourselves. Look after yourselves diligently against all temptations. There is no evil in being tempted. An athlete prepares himself for victory, fighting, but it is evil to be overcome because you are not prepared and you are negligent. I know that everything serves as a temptation. I know that defense is exhausting. I know that it is tiring to have to struggle. But think of what you will gain through these things. And for one hour of pleasure, 
whatever kind it may be, would you like to lose an eternity of peace? What does the pleasure of the flesh, of gold, of thoughts leave you? Nothing. What do you gain by rejecting them? Everything. I am speaking to sinners because man is a sinner. Well, tell me the truth. After satisfying your senses, your pride, your greed, have you felt fresher, happier, safer? In the hour following your satisfaction, which is always the time of meditation, have you sincerely felt that you were happy? I have never tasted the bread of sensuality, but I will reply in your stead. No. Languor, unhappiness, uncertainty, nausea, fear, restlessness, that was the juice squeezed out of the hour spent in pleasure. But I beg you, while I say to you, never do that, I also say to you, do not be inflexible with those who make mistakes. Remember that you are all brothers, made of one flesh and one soul. Consider that there are many reasons why one is led to sin. Be merciful towards sinners and kindly help them and take them back to God, showing them that the path they have followed is full of dangers for the flesh, the mind, and the spirit. Do that, and you will receive a great reward because the Father who is in heaven is merciful to good people, and he knows how to give you one hundredfold to one. Now I say to you, and here Jesus tells me that you must copy the vision dated 12th, August 1944, from line 35 to the end, that is, to the departure of Mary Magdalene. Jesus says directly, look and write. It is the gospel of mercy that I give to everybody, and in particular to those women who will recognize themselves in the sinner and whom I invite to follow her in her redemption. And we'll pause here. 